Job chapter 13, verse 1, Job is speaking. He says, Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty. And I desire to argue with God. But you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be completely silent and that it would become your wisdom. Please hear my argument and listen to the contentions of my lips. Will you speak what is unjust for God? And speak what is deceitful for Him? Will you show partiality for Him? Will you contend for Him? Will it be well when He examines you? (laughs) Or will you deceive Him as one deceives a man? He will surely reprove you if you secretly show partiality. Will not His majesty terrify you and the dread of Him fall on you? Your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Be silent before me so that I may speak and then let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before Him. This also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come before his presence. Father, we come before your presence this morning in prayer, not as godless people, but as amazing as it is to say this, Lord, as godly people. We come before you not as those who are in the wrong, but those who are right by Jesus. Through Jesus. We claim, Lord, the covering of Jesus that we might even approach You. As Your Word says, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And Lord, we thank You that we have Jesus to go before us. We thank You that His light shines in us and we ask for more of that. And today as we study these things, I pray, Father, would You penetrate this whole issue of faith? Would You penetrate deeper into our hearts? Take us to a place we haven't been before. Help us to reconsider what it truly means to have faith in You. I ask what none of us can achieve, but what Your Holy Spirit can do. So come Holy Spirit and teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've looked into these things, you know that myrrh, myrrh is a sweet fragrance. One of the sweetest fragrances in all the world. Has anybody ever actually smelled myrrh? Okay, a handful of you have. Very, very sweet, very aromatic. But it doesn't start out that way. Myrrh, in its beginnings, drips from several species of comifora plants in the form of a bitter-tasting gum resin. If you were to take your finger and just wipe some off a tree there in Israel or somewhere in the Middle East and taste it on your tongue, it wouldn't taste sweet. It'd be bitter. And it begins that way, but then it dries and hardens into crusty little tear-shaped chunks. But it's still not the myrrh that you smell or, or that you can smell as far as the fragrance is concerned. To turn it into that sweet perfume of its fame, it has to be crushed. It has to come under great pressure. Smashed and crushed and crushed some more and ground and only then is the fragrance of myrrh revealed. Now to some people that fragrance is sweet. Even alluring. Solomon said in Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 5, I arose and opened to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. 
Throughout Song of Songs, myrrh is used as this very almost alluring, pleasant, tempting smell. This beautiful smell of, of lovers. To others, though the smell may be sweet, the sense of it is bitter. For as you Bible students know, myrrh is a burial spice. Interesting, I wonder sometimes if the three wise men were all that wise to realize what they were giving. You know, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Did they give these three gifts because they were expensive and and the gift of riches and, and honorable to a king, perhaps? Did they know that they were handing myrrh to Mary... This burial spice. Did they recognize the, the meaning or the use of this stuff? I mean, talk about killing a shower quickly. <laughs> it's not the thing you want to give at a baby shower. Please don't do it. Don't show up giving myrrh. You know, or a, you might as well give a, a coupon for a burial plot. There you go. There's a there's a bitterness to it. Nicodemus, we're told in John 19:39, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, personally, and I can't prove this, but I think that myrrh that was handed to Mary was probably carried by the women to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday to be used as more embalming, as more spice for the body. But there's a third quality to myrrh. Some species of camphora plants give myrrh that's used medicinally as an opiate. Literally taken, ingested, and when it's ingested, it makes the person go numb. Which is interesting to me. That explains Mark 15.23, which tells us on the cross they tried to give Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Why not? John 19 tells us right before he died he took a a sip of sour wine. Why wouldn't he take the wine with the myrrh? Because Jesus would take no painkiller on the cross. He rejected the painkiller. He would feel the full weight of God's wrath on Calvary that day. What's this all got to do with Job? Let me ask you. When you are facing or dealing with crushing pain, how do you respond? Do you just go numb Are you one who becomes unfeeling and you just shut down, not willing to deal? Does does pain produce bitterness in you? You know, that that, that sense of despair and, and death. Or does pain reveal something sweet and fragrant from within you? You see, with with Job it did. Because pain, like crushed myrrh, ultimately reveals what's inside of us. When we go through hard times, traumas, and tragedies, as Job is doing, that's when the stuff of who we are begins to truly emerge and we are seen for what we are. It's in those times of tragedies, those seasons of sorrow, when what we believe emerges from the depths of our heart. For Job, the crushing experience of pain yields a fragrance of faith. And it's pretty impressive. Oh, he's going to argue his point. He's going to make his case before God. He will whine some. He will complain. But he never curses the Lord. He never challenges the Lord. Now, we have 29 chapters to go in this timely teaching in the book of Job. 29. And here in chapter 13, the heart of Job is revealed such that even the argument of the enemy is lost right here. The wager of God is one. What wager? Job chapter 1 verse 11. Satan said, put forth your hand now, touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. 
In chapter 2, verse 5, Satan said, Put forth your hand now, touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. But what does Job say in verse 15? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Game over Satan, wager won by God. And it happens right here. What is it in Job that emerges with, with such brave confidence? And the answer is faith. Faith. There is the stuff of faith in the heart of this man. The prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, said, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by faith. The Apostle Paul picks up on, on Habakkuk's teaching there three times in his New Testament letters. Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, see, to the Jew, he was uh, allowed, invited, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And Paul says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, Paul says, now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. He says in Hebrews 10.37, Yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Why is that? Because the Hebrew writer tells us, Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please him. The righteous will live by faith. Was Job a righteous man? You bet he was. Well, the Lord had already revealed that twice at the outset of our story. Job 1.8, the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. A blameless, upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. God will repeat that in chapter 2 as well. Job is righteous. Why is Job righteous? Because he does all the right things? No. Because he's a man of faith. Because he truly believes that God is, and again, as the Hebrew writer says, and is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Job believes that in his heart of hearts. And even as the pain and the anguish comes crashing down on him, what emerges inside is, but I believe in the God that I know. I am convinced of Him. And He is my Redeemer. Job will say in chapter 19. Listen, as far as God is concerned, only one thing is required of a man or a woman to be declared righteous. Just one. Church attendance, right? No. Bible study, no. Worship, no. One thing is required. Faith. It is faith that yields righteousness. Righteousness. That can sound so religious. It is faith that gets you right before God. It is faith that brings you into right standing. Paul said in Romans 4, 5, To the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. There's no being right before God without faith. Without just simply trusting Him. I'm impressed, I've shared this, that through the book of Job we keep hitting these big themes. These big theological constructs. You know, repentance and friendship. We've talked about suffering. We've talked about Christ our mediator last week. This week, we're back to another one. And that is faith. But please hear me. Some of you, I know for my, myself, when I began studying and thinking through this, I'm like, well, I understand faith. I know what faith is. 
And we talk about faith all the time. It's, it's part of how we live as, as believers in Christ, right? I, I want to invite you to reconsider faith this morning. Because our culture tosses around the word faith with great superficiality. It does not mean today what it used to mean. The word faith, to be a person of faith can mean anything. Man, believe something and you're a person of faith. It doesn't matter what you believe. You can be a Christian or, or you could be Jewish. You could be Islamic or a Wiccan or a neo-paganist or whatever you want. Hey, as long as you believe something, you're a person of faith. Don't believe me, just look in the newspaper. Because oftentimes someone will be described as a person of faith. Read further down and you'll find out, oh, because they're a member of the church of Wicca. That's not a person of faith, my friends. Faith in God's economy is not whatever you believe, dude. Whatever you think, your, your deal. Whatever your perspective is, you're a person of faith. And I respect that. Hmm. James said you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So by our cultural definition, demons would be people of faith. But the Bible rightly tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Gang, the fragrance of our faith in Jesus Christ emerges in the times of crushing. It comes out in those moments of pain, in those seasons where life is hard. And for Job, the fragrance is wonderful. As the trauma in his life works, it's God wins. Satan loses. That's it. Now in the chapter before us, Job is once again defending himself before his friends. In this case, it's Zophar. We talked about Zophar Wednesday night and his teapot theology. Because Zophar is one who just goes off. And you're like a shrieking teapot. His rebuke of Job is the most scalding yet. And so we called him kind of a teapot. It cracked me up one sister this morning. She was leaving first hour. She said, yeah, my mom listened to the Wednesday night study online and she named her teapot Zophar. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so he's all steamed up, this Zophar. And, and as he speaks, he offers nothing new. He gives nothing worth hearing. No wisdom, nothing helpful at all. And so Job finally responds at the beginning of chapter 13. He says, Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. Now, Job isn't saying, I'm better than you, you're better than me. He's saying, I know what you're saying. Tell me something I don't know. Teapot. Explain to me something that will help. Offer me something of value. Right now, getting all the words, and, and finally when we finish so far, all three friends have spoken. And all the words of his friends are simply exasperating. They are not helping the situation. They're not helping Job out of his pain. They're just driving him further down. And it's only round one. Do you realize we have two more rounds to go? Two more rounds. Eliphaz speaks, then Job responds. Then Bildad speaks, then Job responds. Then Zophar speaks, then Job responds. Round one. We go round two, and then in round three, the only one who doesn't speak is Zophar. Probably doesn't really know what to say at that point. I not really, can't help. So Job is already tiring of this, and we're told in verse three, he said, I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. Remember the difference between Job and his friends. It is the difference between religion and relationship. The friends speak about God. Job says, I will speak to God. I will argue my case to the Almighty. I will come before God. We can talk about God all you want, but that tends to be the stuff of religion. Let's talk to Him. 
Let's be in conversation with Him. In this, Job's faith begins to be seen here. You might want to jot a few things down about faith this morning that we learn from Job. First off, faith persistently pleads with God. Faith persistently pleads with God. Uh, Turn in your Bibles over to Luke chapter 11 for a moment. Keep your finger there in Job. Luke 11. Jesus with uh, with the apostles, His disciples there, and they're asking Him, they're trying to figure out how to really pray, how to be men of prayer. They've seen the Pharisees do it. Obviously, that's not working for them. So they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus begins to teach, and He shares what we call the Lord's Prayer. After that, watch what He says. This is remarkable. Verse 5, Luke chapter 11. He said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And Jesus says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And you students of Greek, you know this, the words ask, seek, knock. The Greek Greek tense there is keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Verse 10, For everyone who keeps asking, Jesus says, receives. And he who keeps seeking, finds. And to him who keeps knocking, it will be opened. Jesus says, stick with it. Be persistent. Don't stop coming before the Father. Bug Him. I mean, that's in essence what He's saying. Bother God. Annoy Him. Come at Him continually. Which is what Job does. While the friends are talking about God, Job continues to talk to God, continues to make his his case, continues to plea his problems. Skip over to Luke chapter 18. For Jesus takes us one more step in this. Luke 18 with a second parable. He's telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. And he says in verse 2, Luke 18, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. What a great teacher Jesus is. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for His elect to cry out to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will quickly bring about justice for them. However, however, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Faith. Jesus, I thought you were talking about prayer. I thought you were talking about persistently praying to God. Hey, listen, prayer develops faith. And faith is strengthened in prayer. Faith and prayer go hand in hand. You really don't have one without the other. Because a faith without a prayer life, faith without talking to God, is religious faith. Faith that talks about God. You can have all kinds of head knowledge about God. But if you're not talking to Him, where's your faith? To develop your faith, pray. To develop your prayer life, deepen your faith. 
The two are hand in hand. It's a wonderful truth. And God takes the time through Jesus to teach us to be persistent. I want you all to be the squeaky wheels, Jesus says. Knock on my door late at night. Come at me again and again and again. Don't stop. Be persistent. Bring your pleas to me. This is faith. And this is what Jesus invites us to. And Paul said it in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Prayer is not just for the lesses among us. Prayer is not just for the pastors and the shepherds. It's not just for the prayer team that meets Thursday. I'll, I'll put my name on the prayer list so I know that they're praying for me. No, you pray. You bring your request to God. You talk to the Father. Without that, your faith is not going anywhere, gang. Well, back in Job chapter 13, verse 4. <laughs> These guys have done a lot of talking and Job says, you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be completely silent and that it would become your wisdom. Verse 6, please hear my argument and listen to the contentions of my lips. Down in verse 12, he says, your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. In other words, you guys need to buy yourselves a ticket on a one-way trip to Shuttyville. Shut up! This is what Job is saying. I mean, I know it's poetic and flowery, but oh, that you would be completely silent. Oh, that you would just shut up. Blah, blah. You guys are just going around and around. Listen, a person of faith knows when to pray and when to shut up. When to be silent. What do you mean? Number two, faith wisely waits on the Lord. Wait a minute. Isn't that kind of a contradiction? I mean, if faith is constantly pleading, but now you're saying we've got to wisely wait, which is it? It's both. The difference between pleading with the Lord in faith and just talking to hear yourself talk, that's, that's what we're concerned with here. That's what Job's friends are doing. They are talking to hear themselves talk. They are listening to their own platitudes, and Job says your platitudes are like ashes. They just blow away. There's no content to them. The Proverbs, they're like clay. Step on it, it just crushes and goes to dust. They mean nothing. There's no substance here. Trying to fill up the emptiness with their own understanding and wordiness. That's the problem of the friends. Gang, let me ask you this. Because I think it's a problem that we tend to have ourselves in Christianity. When you gather with friends to pray, how much time do you spend talking about what you want to pray versus the time you actually spend praying? The tendency is we'll go 45 minutes talking about, oh, I've got to do this one. And then we go to pray, and it's like, Lord, take care of it. Thanks, gone. You know, five minutes of prayer to 45 minutes of jabbering. Which is why, and there's great wisdom in this, and it's something Les actually taught me years ago. When you gather with someone to pray for someone else, don't talk about it first. Just start praying. Begin with prayer. And you will find yourself hearing what you need to hear. We often get in the way, we, with our wordiness, try to work out wisdom from a human place, from a place of the flesh. God's saying, if you would just be quiet and come to me. You see, true wisdom is wisdom that comes from above. So if we can still ourselves and begin to pray to God and say, Lord, we don't even know what to pray here. We have a friend in distress. I'm in distress. There's a problem. We, we lift it up to you. We're asking for your advice, for your help, for your counsel. And listen. That is waiting 
with wisdom, and it's also persistently pleading at the same time. It's bringing it before the Lord. I love this proverb, and it speaks to Job's three friends. Perhaps you can relate. Proverbs 17.28 Can't even a fool, when he keeps silence, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. That's what Job is saying in verse 5. Oh, that you would be completely silent and that it would become your wisdom. You see, my three friends, if you would just shut up, I would actually think that you're sitting here that you had some wisdom to, to help. The more you talk, the dumber it gets. It is wise to be silent, to cut off our words, to wait on the Lord, persistent in prayer, wisely waiting. But here's the thing, gang. Other than just blathering nonsense out there, there's a dangerous pitfall to those of us who do a lot of talking. And the dangerous pitfall is this. For all of our self-generated words of wisdom, we can begin to misrepresent God. And that's what these guys are doing. And they're just talking up a storm, and the longer they go, the more of a hole they dig for themselves, because they are not representing the God that Job knows is there. The God that Job wants to argue his case to. Number three, faith correctly characterizes God. Job and his faith does. His friends, for their many, many words, don't. In fact, in Job 42, verse 7, we're told the Lord will say to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. That's marvelous. That tells us that what Job speaks throughout the book, though he's speaking from pain, though there's some complaining, some complaining, some whining, some wishing it could just all be over, in all of that he never speaks wrongly about God. But his friends do. Well, how so? Aren't there some truths that, I mean, there's some things that they share that already we've seen are true. Oh yeah, they share some truth, but it's all encased in judgment and condemnation. It does not rightly represent who God is. So Job says in verse 7, Will you speak what is unjust for God? And speak what is deceitful for Him? Will you show partiality for Him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well with you when He examines you? Or will you deceive Him as one deceives a man? He will surely reprove you if you secretly show partiality. What does that mean? It's religious, gang. Listen, a subtle point. What His friends are doing is trying to defend God. They're taking God's side against Job. What the Lord would say is, hey look, you don't even have to take my side. You just trust me for the truth. And what's true will be revealed. You don't have to stand up here and try to defend me. Part of the problem that we've gotten into in 2,000 years of Christianity is when we try to defend God. And in that defensive posture, showing partiality to God instead of just saying, hey, I know the Lord is true and, and, and we'll let Him prove that to you. We get ourselves in trouble. We mischaracterize His very nature. And it's a dangerous thing to do. Psalm 103.13 says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. Job fears God. His friends are misrepresenting God. They're showing a compassionless, mean-spirited, heavy-handed, judgmental God. And that's not who the Father is. Great example of this. The people were thirsty again. And they're grumbling and they're in the desert. The people of Israel, you may remember the story. It's in Numbers chapter 20. And Moses comes before the Lord and the Lord tells Moses, he says, assemble the congregation 
He says in Numbers 20, verse 8, And speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water, and thus you shall bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. I got it covered. Just come on over to God's water cooler. (laughs) Rock in the desert. God's ready to take care of them. Speak to the rock, Moses. Now you may be thinking, wait, I thought the story was that Moses struck the rock. Yeah, he did the first time. The first time, God said, strike the rock. And Moses did, and water came out. This time, God says, Moses, I just want you to speak to the rock. Wouldn't that have been a cool miracle? I mean, it's one thing to strike the rock. You know, those who who try to work out these things could say, he hit the rock with with his rod and probably broke something loose, and maybe there was an underground spring there that just kind of burst out when he broke the rock with his stick. See, that's what really happened. You know, if he had just spoken to the rock. Rock? Can we have some water, please? (laughs) Now, that would have been a cool miracle. And God tells Moses, this is what I want you to do. Moses doesn't do it. He's angry with the people. He is fed up. He's had it. So he grabs his staff, goes over to the rock, and after calling them the equivalent of morons, (laughs) takes the stick and he smacks the rock, not once, twice. Water comes out. Didn't God say to speak to the rock? Well, yeah, He did. But God is a compassionate God, full of grace and mercy, and wanted to provide water for His people. But he pulls Moses aside afterwards. And he says in Numbers 20, verse 12, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses struck out. He struck the rock in defiance to what God told him to do. Why? Because he didn't believe God. He didn't believe God would do what he said he would do. Just speak to the rock and I'll take care of it. And because Moses didn't believe, Moses wouldn't lead the people into the promised land. He mischaracterized God before the people. You see, in that moment, God was not angry with Israel. God was concerned for them. God was compassionate. I get it. They're thirsty. Let's give them some water. Not a big deal. Moses was angry. So Moses steps in there, I'm going to prove right the rock, and this is what God and I feel about you, and boom. Bad situation. He mischaracterized the nature of God the compassion of the Father. And so Moses wouldn't go into the promised land until on the Mount of Transfiguration, but that's another teaching for another time. Let me just ask you this. Have you ever lashed out at God in disbelief? Or in pain or hardship or turmoil? Have you ever been emboldened to act or react in a way that mischaracterizes God? Guilty. I've done it many times. That's why Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, this is not in my notes, but I've got to tell you this. There, there's, there's something else that happened in this story with Moses that's amazing. Because what Moses did in not believing God is he messed up a messianic prophecy. What do you mean? God said, strike the first rock. God said, speak to the second rock. In both cases, water will flow. Strike the first one, speak to the second one. Water will flow. Where are you going with this, Rick? The Bible tells us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that Christ is the rock. The rock is Jesus. We have a picture here of Jesus. And it would have been great if Moses hadn't messed it up. What do you mean? Strike the rock. Jesus, the first time, was struck, was smitten for our sins, our transgressions. And what happened to him on the cross? They drove the spear into his side and and blood and water flowed. The second time, 
Well, there is no second time. We are not to strike the rock. Now we speak to the rock and the water flows. The living water of His Holy Spirit. But Moses wasn't believing God for what God wanted to do. He misrepresents God. He strikes the rock two more times. Do we strike the rock ourselves when we lack faith in God? Does the world see the forgiveness of Christ in you or do they feel the rod from you? Our role, our job in all this is to love. It's to be compassionate. It's to show the forgiveness of Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen. Good, you're with me. Alright. Verse 13, back in chapter 13. So Job continues. He says, Be silent before me so that I may speak and then let come on me what may. Let's put it out there and let's let the chips fall. Verse 14, he says, Why should I take in my, fle- my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Well, what are you talking about, Job? He says, You guys are so focused on me and my predicament. You're focused on, why, why should I sink my teeth into something as tasteless as myself? Why should I trust my life to myself? But that's what you guys are doing, he says. You, my friends, you're all focused on me, my predicament, and what I can do to turn it around, and you're missing the point. What's the point, Job? Verse 15. Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. He's the answer. I am not the answer to my pain and my problems and my suffering. He is the answer. He's where I need to go. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before Him. I'm going to take this to God because that's where the answer is. Number four in your notes, faith tenaciously trusts in God. Faith grabs hold of God and says, I don't care where this leads me or where this takes me. I am not letting go. I will hang on, regardless of how messed up or tumultuous or painful life may get. I am clinging to you, Father. There's something that seems to me to be missing in these last days where faith is concerned. Perhaps that's why Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Because the faith that seems to be at the forefront of Christianity in these days, I'm not sure if it's the faith that the Word calls us to, that the Lord invites us to. It's as though we Christians are sinking our teeth in our own flesh. That we're taking our lives into our hands. That faith is more about the will of man than it is about the will of God. How often do we pray faith for healing? Or we pray faith for blessing and prosperity? Or faith to do great things? What's wrong with that? Faith at least as far as I understand from Scripture, is not trusting in God as long as He does what I demand. As long as everything comes together here, well then, Lord, I'll trust You here. And the horizontal stuff, You bless that, we'll have a vertical relationship, you and me. Job calls that kind of thinking the Proverbs of Ashes, and it blows away. He calls it the defenses of clay, and it crumbles. Because faith is not the key for worldly success. And physical blessing, though sometimes, often, we pray for that. Lord, I just, I, I'm heading into this business venture. Make it work. Make it successful. What if God's going, yeah, but I need it to fail for you to get where I want you to be. How about, Father, give me faith for sickness rather than faith for healing. I don't like the sound of that at all. Me either. But how about thinking about it? 
How about instead of faith for prosperity, God, give me faith in poverty. Instead of, give me out of these circumstances, Lord, help me to be content with my drippy roof and leaky faucets. As opposed to faith, even to have some kind of big kingdom impact. How about simply praying, Lord, may I be found a faithful slave. The last, the least, servant of all. I think in heaven we may very well see a lineup of people who none of us have ever seen before, none of us have ever heard of. In fact, most people in heaven are going, who is that guy? Who is she? I don't have any idea. What's Jesus doing? He's giving them rewards. What's he saying? Listen, listen. He's saying, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Because to Jesus, the tiniest acts of faithfulness accomplished by people in a fellowship that none of us are even paying attention to. Jesus goes, oh, now there's some faith. He was sweeping up. No one was there. There's some faith. She she gave her a ride just so she could be at church. Wow. It's it's so backwards to the way that, that we think. The essence of real faith, gang, is though He slay me, I will hope in Him. I will not base my faith on my circumstance. Who else had a faith like that? Well, three men come to mind. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Standing there before the furnace, that furnace Nebuchadnezzar had built to burn anyone who wouldn't worship his image. The furnace heated up seven times its normal heat. Which is interesting because the tribulation is seven years. But again, another teaching for another time. This furnace is heated up and the boys are standing there. And they look at Nebuchadnezzar and they say, Daniel 3.17, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. (laughs) That's just incredible. They are standing before the King of the world. Okay? Not James Cameron. Nebuchadnezzar. And as they stand there before this great King and all of His servants and the people all around and the big old statue and the burning furnace... They stand there and they say, God's able to deliver us from you. And then they say something more astounding. But even if He doesn't, let it be known to you, O King, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow. And so the servants grab Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and chuck them into the furnace. And those who threw them in the furnace burned up on the threshold instantaneously. A few minutes later, you know the story. They send someone to look. And I don't know how they looked into the furnace. I'm not, I haven't figured that one out. But they look in there. And the guy who looks in says, um, Can I get a second pair of eyes over here? <laughs> you see that? You see what I'm saying? What is this? They're walking around in there. And, and there's a fourth guy, the pagan says, like one of the sons of the gods. I would put it this way. There's a fourth man in there, the son of God. Walking with them in the furnace. <laughs> Incredible. How did they know that was going to happen? Here's the point. They didn't. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not know they were going to meet Jesus in the fire. They had no idea that they had faith. Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. Who else had a faith like that? The fourth man. Jesus. Jesus who expressed it this way. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, Father, that yours be done. And listen to me, gang. Listen. God did slay him. 
Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. God did slay Jesus. That's the point. Verse 16, Job says it beautifully. This also will be my salvation. For a godless man may not come before His presence. Only the one who was slain could come before His presence. Only those who follow after, who believe in, who trust, the one who was slain can come into the presence of God. That's how faith yields righteousness, gang. That I have faith in Him, in His righteous act going before me. Though He slay Jesus, because He, let me put it this way, because He slayed Jesus, I will hope in Him. Job asked last week in our study, how can a man be in the right before God? There's only one way. Faith in the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 5, verse 11, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's Jesus. Faith tenaciously trusts in God for no other reason than this. He was slain. I will hope in Him because He was slain. I was just reading this morning before I left the house, and many of you know this, that Greg Laurie, a year ago, uh, July 2008, Greg Laurie's son was driving to, to the Harvest Church and got in a car accident and was killed. And immediately after that, I was just stunned this morning, I'm reading like three days after that, they had a memorial there at the church, and Greg Laurie, no, it was a Sunday morning, they hadn't even had the memorial yet, Greg Laurie got up. He wasn't speaking. They had someone filling in for him and, and he got up anyway and he said, you know, I've never been in a more painful place in my life but I haven't stopped believing. I know who God is. This uh, past three weeks ago, I guess now it was, when Greg Laurie was at the conference I was at, he, he made this statement. Listen. He said, God's past faithfulness demands that I trust Him. God's past faithfulness demands that I trust Him. And nowhere is that faithfulness more clearly portrayed than in the slaying of Jesus Christ. Faith is to trust God with no agenda, no demands, no self-service, just trusting Him, even on the grumpy days. When you're going... Those are the moments when we need to silence... Shut up. Stop talking, Rick. And just trust me. It's going to be good. So, what does pain reveal in your life? Do you just go numb? Do you react bitterly? Or does pain reveal the fragrance of faith? There was in John's day a city. There along a Roman postal route in Asia Minor. And in that city was a church, and that church was in serious trouble. Pain, tribulation, turmoil, they thought this was it. Going through some of the worst hardship and persecution of any church in that region. The church was called, the city was called Smyrna. The church at Smyrna. But what's interesting about Smyrna, and Jesus writes a letter to the church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. What's interesting is the name Smyrna. It means myrrh. Myrrh. This persecuted, suffering, struggling church. And you know what Jesus said to them? 
Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. One last thing. This last week I was asked by a person was talking with a person going through a really, really bad time. And this person said, why should I even bother trying to do good? Why should I even mess with morality? Why should I do it? Here's the answer, for Christ's sake. Though everything go wrong, though everybody be against you, though sin be rife around you, for Christ's sake, be faithful. You do what's right for Christ's sake. Be faithful until death for Christ's sake. If you can't find it in and of yourself to do the right thing because you think you're too messed up, would you do it for Christ's sake? Would you put faith in Him and not in yourself? For Christ's sake, be faithful. Be faithful.